It struck me um, about two screens ago, um, it said the, the word in every um, tribe, or no, I can't remember exactly the words were. Um, I didn't realise until really recently um, that the UK is the only place in the world where it has ever been illegal to have a copy of the Bible in your own language. Um, that, that's true, it was illegal to have a copy of the Bible in English in the UK. No other country in the world has it ever officially been illegal to have the Bible in your own language. Some people don't, places don't like you having a Bible at all, but there's no law that says you can't have one in your own language or translation. Um, we take it for granted today, I think. Let's have another short reading. Paul writes in Ephesians, um, chapter 6, verse 10. It's on page 1177 if you want to look it up. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Have you noticed how words can change meanings, have completely different connotations in different places, different ages, um, different generations? Um, a f someone was telling me, I can't remember who it was, but um, a short while ago a friend of theirs uh, was living in the States for a while, in the United States, and he had to take a driving test because uh, you can only travel, use an international driving license for so long. And there was a written questionnaire as well that he had to fill in. And where is it right to drive? And one of the questions, one of the answers was, you know, A, B, C, whatever, was on the pavement, which is, of course, the correct answer. In the estates, you drive on the pavement. That's the road. You get arrested for doing that here. Did you know that a computer was a job title for someone who added up figures in a bank or an institution like that? That's what a computer was. Do you remember when an apple was a fruit and a Mac was a coat you wore? So was an anorak. Maybe you think I'm an anorak with all these facts coming out. That's a different type. And wicked. We sing a song about God being wicked in a, a kid's song. It doesn't mean what it used to. And bad, apparently, as well. Have I got that one right? Bad can mean good. Yeah, I've got that one right. And gay. I mean, think of the change that's been in that meaning. Sometimes we can become so familiar with a particular definition of a word or phrase that it never occurs to us that it could mean anything else. In the passage about the sword of the Spirit, 
It's the word of God. It's the only offensive piece of the armour that's mentioned. And I think we become so tuned to the fact that the word of God means the Bible, it means the scriptures, that we just assume that's what it means without thinking what else it might mean. I looked in a commentary um, about this, and it, it said that, it said the sword of the spirit, meaning the scriptures, and as an example, it, uh, it gave of Jesus in his temptation, how he used the scriptures when to, uh, talking with Satan. I should have shown you that one a little bit earlier. The word of God. And Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now that's a really good example of Jesus using the word of God, the sword of the spirit. Uh, It's a quote from Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3. But is it the word of God, the sword of the spirit, simply because he's quoting from the Bible? Is that what makes it the word of God? I don't think so. Not, not simply that reason alone. I'll show you what I mean. Let's, let's replace the scripture with a different one. Jesus answered, it is written, nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Totally the wrong response. Not, it's a Bible verse. It's out of Ecclesiastes 8 verse 3. Not at all what he should have been saying at that point. But it is a Bible verse. So it's It's not just the fact that it's a quote from the Bible that makes it the word of God in this context. How does the Bible use the phrase, the word of God? Well, it does use it, I mean, the scriptures. Um, In that one from Matthew, Jesus is clearly talking about the scriptures, um, what it says in the scriptures about honouring your father and mother, And um, he talks to the Pharisees and says, thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. He's using it to talk about the Bible, or the Old Testament they had at the time. So it it does mean the scriptures, but it means other things as well. And look at these verses. But this word of God came to Shemaiah, and very similar verse about Nathan the prophet. And the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. No one rushed up to them with a scroll. That's not what it means. It means God spoke to them. God actually came and spoke to them. Like prophecy, God God was using them as prophetically to say what he was saying in any given situation. And it can mean that as well. Okay, is there another meaning? Jesus said when he was talking about the sower, the seed is the word of God. In Acts, we read that the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Samaria had accepted the word of God. 
And Paul writes to the Thessalonians, you received the word of God. He's talking about the gospel, the message of the gospel, the saving power of the gospel. They accepted the gospel and so were saved. Excuse me one second. Sorry about that. There's one more thing that I can think of that it's used of in the Bible. In Revelation, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True, and his name is the Word of God. And okay, the, the next one from John 1 doesn't actually use the term the Word of God, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the phrase is also used of Jesus, of God himself. All of those things are the word of God. Now, the Bible contains the record of all of the other things, if you like. Um, The scriptures contain a record of prophecy, of uh, God speaking to people, of the gospel, of what Jesus did, what God has done. And it's often our primary access to these. Well, it is our primary access to these things most of the time, to, to, to all the other things. The Jews were known as the people of the book. The Bible should be treasured, studied, read. God speaks through it. But you can't just take any part of it and treat it like a lucky charm or take it out of place and insist that um, it, you know, this little bit on itself is, is a major thing. Um, there are loads of cults, there are loads of religions that, that use parts of the Bible, use the Bible in its entirety and come up with some very strange ideas. And it can get to the point, actually, where some people almost worship the Bible, worship the book, rather than the creator who's behind the book. In none of this do I want to diminish the importance of the Bible. Um, I think it's really important. But we can end up with false, false promises and false understandings. I want to tell you about one that actually I've heard preached in a church, not round here, miles away. But this was taught, certainly for a while, in this church. Um, based on this verse in Acts... When Paul and um, Silas were in jail, and the jailer asks what he should do to be saved, and they, they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they were actually teaching that if you were saved, your household, your family, would automatically be saved. God had promised it in his word, and they would point to this verse. Now, there are some huge problems with that. It's nonsense. If it was true, no one, no one would need personal faith. They just need a relative who's been saved. There's no need for evangelism, because if you push it far enough, everyone's related. You've heard of the six degrees of separation, haven't you, where they relate people to other people, and, and it doesn't take long to reach virtually everyone in the world. 
It also contradicts other things that Paul himself wrote. He wrote to the Corinthians when they were talking about a, a husband or a wife who'd become a Christian and their partner hadn't. And he says, how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know husband, whether you will save your wife? He says, it's not certain. We can't guarantee this. It's up to them in a, to a certain degree. You know, they've got to make a decision. But God could take a verse like the first one and he could apply it to you. He could bring it to you. He could say, this verse is actually for you. I am going to do this for you. I mean, literally at the time, Paul knew, or God through Paul spoke and said, your household will be saved. And they were. It was a, a form of prophecy, if you like. He knew this would happen. God had said it would to this man. Maybe he would say that to you. He could do. But it has to be him saying it. Not, not us taking something out of context and deciding we want this, therefore we will find, scour the Bible to find any verse that sort of hints at it and then use it. But if God does say it, it's our duty to accept it. And this is just an example. There could, there could be many verses that... Um, God could take. Have you ever had it when something has leapt off the page at you or sprung into your mind, totally unbidden, that God has said to you? And you know that maybe literally in context it doesn't mean that, but God is saying something special to you. And he's using the Bible like that. And he does use the Bible like that. And it's exciting when he does. But again, it's God speaking. And in a way, that's, that's the whole thing of what I'm trying to say tonight. It's about God. God himself speaking. God saying things into situations. So how can God give us these personal promises? If we don't read the Bible, how can he bring it to mind? If we don't know it, how can he show us things? Imagine you're on a journey, on a train. You're travelling along, it's around midday, it's bright and sunny out the window. Suddenly all the lights come on. And you think, typical British Rail, this is on a timer and they have got it terribly wrong. They're just wasting power, how silly. Then you enter this huge mile-long tunnel. And you think, maybe it wasn't so silly. Maybe it was a sensible thing to do. It was getting ready for what was coming. And at times the Bible's like that as well. We might not feel we particularly need to know all that it says or need to, to read it daily or regularly or whatever. But if we don't, when a time of darkness comes, when things are really bad, it becomes much harder for us to receive the light that's in it. And God can bring light out of it in all sorts of circumstances. In the story that, um, that Tony read to us uh, about the, the two people on the way to uh, Emmaus, maybe they're a mar married couple. They, they lived together, um, so it's quite probable they were married. How would they have felt? They'd have been pretty bewildered. Um, they'd seen Jesus crucified. They'd been his follower. Um, they'd 
followed him about. And there's a really, really poignant verse in the middle of that. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Can you feel the despair in that verse? All all their hopes, all the promises that they thought God was going to do, all the things that they thought he was going to do, had just been wrecked. There were stories that these women were bringing back, these fanciful stories, it seemed to them. What would they have expected the Messiah to do? They'd have probably expected him to to raise an army. Or maybe miraculously redeem Israel from the Romans. To set the the, um, Jews free from oppression. And Jesus joins them on this journey. It's late in the evening. He's walking with them and he keeps himself from being recognised. And he starts talking to them. He calls them foolish. He starts explaining the scriptures, scriptures that they knew. Later, they say, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked, while he talked with us on the road? There's just this excitement that came from the scriptures being opened up to them as Jesus was replacing a wrong hope, a false hope, with the true hope. He was showing them what God was really saying. But even then, I mean, they get to the end of their journey, and it's obviously late at night, and they say, well, partly because it's the right thing to do. They invite this person in with them. It's late in the evening, it's dark, there are robbers on the road, you don't really want to travel at this time of night. Come in, come in with us. We'll we'll give you a meal. It was partly the right thing to do, but also, I think, they just so enjoyed having this person with him. They didn't know who he was, but they just wanted him there. But it wasn't this that made them get up, run back to Jerusalem, seven miles back to Jerusalem, on this road that it was too dark to travel on. That's why they invited him in. It was late in the evening. There were bandits on the road, but they got up and they ran. They didn't think about it. They had to be back with the disciples to talk to them. What it was was the presence of Jesus, the realisation of who he was. That's what made the change, seeing him. And that's it with the scriptures as well. It's the presence of the living God indwelling the Bible or the gospel message. Or speaking into a situation. It was the same with Job. Do you remember the story of Job? Things were so unfair for him. He was demanding his right to complain to God, to argue his case before God. Like Simon was saying about a lot of the Psalms, they do similar things. And he actually got the chance. God turned up in person to talk to him. But he doesn't take it. He doesn't take the chance. He realises, as God speaks, that he's absolutely nothing before God. But the thing that matters isn't the answer to the questions, the complete understanding of all these things. It's the presence of the living God. That's what makes the change. God being there. Do you have any 
have hoped. Have there had hopes in your life that don't seem to be coming true, that seem to drag on and don't go anywhere? Are there things that you thought maybe were promises, or maybe you'd understood that God would do, and they just haven't seemed to happen? Does Jesus perhaps want to change false hopes into real ones, just with his presence, based on him being there? Does he want to bring the sword of the Spirit into your life, hearing him speak, hearing him say things, into situations, into circumstances? And he does still speak. He does enter situations. But how do we get to know him? How do we get to recognise him? Jesus said, my sheep recognise my voice. I know them. They follow me. He was claiming, when he was saying he was the good shepherd, he said, my sheep recognise my voice. How do you learn to recognise someone's voice? By listening to it. There's no other way. We learn to recognise God by how he speaks through the Bible, through prayer, through other people sometimes. We have to listen and learn to listen. It's a hard thing. In Revelation, at the end of the Bible, there's a battle being fought for this world towards the end of the book. A huge army is preparing to fight against God. And how it's um, a little later on from that quote about the rider on the white horse. You're expecting this huge climax. If it was a Hollywood movie, there would be a battle scene like the one at the end of Lord of the Rings that goes on for sort of 10 minutes with tens of thousands of people. Uh, you know, meant to be going on for hours and hours or days and days, but it's not. In the Bible, one verse and it's over. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came out of the mouth of the one riding the white horse. That's Jesus. The one riding the white horse is Jesus. And a sword out of his mouth. Now, I don't think it's literal. It'd be very silly. It's his word. It's him speaking. That is the sword of the Spirit. God speaking. Jesus speaking. And it defeats all opposition. All the armies of Satan in one go. It's a non-event. Just as God spoke in Genesis at the beginning of the Bible and his word brought light out of darkness, revelation at the end of the Bible, Jesus speaks and destroys the armies of darkness. 
This is the sword of the Spirit. This is the Word of God. God inhabiting his gospel. God inhabiting his scriptures. God speaking into our world today, into our lives. And close with just two scriptures. One's from Hebrews. For the word of God is full of living power. It's sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into our innermost thoughts and desires. The other one in the Old Testament, Jeremiah. Does not my word burn like fire, asked the Lord? Is it not like a mighty hammer that smashes the rock to pieces? The word of the Lord is powerful. The word of the Lord is mighty. The word of the Lord is active. The word of the Lord speaks. Let's pray. Dear Lord, speak to us, we pray. Speak into our lives. Speak into our situations, wherever we are. Help us stop and listen. Sometimes we think we know so much and we think we know how situations should go, what you should be doing, and we get confused. Help us stop and listen, we pray. Inhabit your word as we read it. Bring its life to us, we pray. Whatever it is we need, moment by moment, day by day, different problems, different situations, things that seem impossible to deal with. Maybe people who seem impossible to deal with. Or our own weakness. And speak through us too, we pray, Lord. Help us to use that sword. The darkness will be defeated, but more that light will come into other people's lives. Change our lives, we pray. Use them to bring light. Use them to bring light into others' lives around us. Amen.